Let's see. Okay, we're working. Great. Well, we are jumping into a new series today, as you can see from your bulletin. Series called Sinking. But first, I have to ask the question how many of you like swimming? How many of you actually enjoy swimming? How many of you do not enjoy swimming? Okay, I'm in that category. How many of you can't swim? Be honest. Okay, there's a few of you that don't know how to swim. All right, uh, you are not invited to the kayak trip, uh, just so you know. Uh, actually, you're still invited, okay? Just wear a life jacket or something. How many of you, now, here we got to be really honest. How many of you have ever tried walking on water? Come on now. All right, my hand's raised, not at a, you know, it's because I've done it, all right? Tried to walk. It didn't work. Uh, I've really tried. I'm not a huge fan of swimming. Uh, it's too much work for me personally uh, because I sink like a rock. Uh, apparently, it's a rare thing, but some people don't float. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, as a kid, everybody would try to teach me how to float. You know, you lay on your back, you take a big breath of water, and man, as soon as they'd let go of me, I would just sink like a rock. And I was always told I was doing it wrong. I wasn't doing something right. And then I found out there are just legitimately some people who sink like a rock, who cannot float. For me to stay above water takes a lot of work. And so I just do not enjoy swimming at all because it is a lot of work. Well, I don't know if you've ever had a close call in the water, uh, whether that be in a pool or on the beach or um, in a bathtub. I mean, I'm not judging. Um, just saying, we, you may have had a close call in the water. Uh, but I remember one time, uh, my close, closest call in the water, I guess I would call it, was when I was in the pool, just a regular old pool with a bunch of kids, uh, a bunch of older kids, and they kept dunking me and dunking me and dunking me. I don't know if you've ever been dunked. Uh, not a favorite activity, certainly wouldn't fall in the top 10 favorite activities for me. Uh, but at one point, they had been repeatedly dunking me, and I had no air left. And I remember exhaling under the water, and that was my last little bit of breath. And as I breathed in water and came fighting out of the water, choking, and I legitimately thought I was going to die in that moment. I remember it. It was very real to me, and I really thought that was it. But there is, if you've ever had a close call in the water, you'll, you know there is nothing like that panic in the water when you begin to think you're not going to make it. As you, uh, whether it be, you know, you were in an ocean and a riptide got you and you are further out than you thought you were going to be, or just that anxiety, that panic that hits you when you don't think uh, you're going to make it. I actually, uh, when I was a teenager, I actually saved somebody from drowning, uh, a friend of mine who didn't know how to swim and thought the best time to test how deep the pool was was, was when nobody else was around. Uh, we were all down like having lunch and the pool had a fence around it. You couldn't actually see in the pool. He thought that was the best time to see how deep the pool was and ended up slipping into the deep end and someone yelled, Ricky's drowning. And everybody thought it was a joke because he was like the class clown kind of kid, like always pulling a prank. And that's when it dawned on me, wait, Ricky doesn't know how to swim. He's not joking. If, so ran up and it was in that moment as I was trying to save him, I learned a very valuable lesson, uh, there is only one person that you are concerned with when you are drowning. And it is not the person trying to save you. It is you and yourself. I don't know if you've ever been in a close call, uh, but in that moment, you're not concerned with anybody else except yourself. And so as I was trying to save him, he began to drown me. 
and uh, I learned in a little technique from way back when, I don't know when I had heard of it, uh, but when someone's, you know, you're trying to save somebody and they're trying to kill you, uh, is you grab their armpit and you yank on it or you pinch them or do something and it actually, it worked. Uh, much to his chagrin, uh, it worked, but uh, I also was able to save him, got him out of the pool, and, um, but it was kind of a scary moment for both of us, but I remember, I mean, we were friends, he liked me, we got along pretty well, but he was trying to drown me because he was only focused on himself. We, when we're sinking, when we're drowning, I don't know if, uh, whether it be in the water or just in life, when we're sinking, it's very easy to only see ourselves and our problems. I don't know if you've ever been in a season of your life where nobody else mattered, nothing else mattered, just you and your problems. Have you ever been in a moment where you were in a panic or anxiety hit you and nothing else mattered, just you and your problems? Well, today I want to look at three interesting accounts in the Bible. Each of these accounts shows a different reaction to overwhelming circumstances, to a situation where the individual or individuals might feel like they are drowning, they're sinking, and they're not going to make it. The first account I want to look at today is when the Israelites, who have just escaped captivity in Egypt, are sending spies into Israel, or what will become Israel, the promised land. They're, they're sending these 12 spies in, and they're going to check the land out and see what's going on. Now, they've just seen God do amazing things. The nation of Israel has watched God's hand in a powerful display of His supreme authority over everything. Uh, if, you study the, if you've never studied the plagues, study the plagues. Uh, we're not going to do that this morning, but each of them goes against the belief of an Egyptian deity. They, they each show God's supremacy over the Egyptian deity. So it's pretty cool if you look at them. Um, obviously, God wasn't just picking random plagues out of a hat. Uh, he had a very specific purpose for what he was doing, but they just saw that happen. They saw him do the, the unleash the 10 plagues that devastated the Egyptians. God parts the Red Sea. They, they see a, a sea part in front of them, and they walk through on dry ground. Uh, God makes water come out of a rock. He, he gives them manna to eat that just falls from the heavens. These are the type of things that they have just seen. This is what they experience on a daily basis, this level of miracles. They come to the promised land that God has told them He will empower them to take from the current inhabitants of the land. So they send out 12 spies to check out the land, to take a look at what's going on over there. And 10 out of those 12 spies come back with this report. Uh, reading from Numbers chapter 13, verses uh, 27 and 28. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation again. Um, Numbers 13, 27 and 28 says, This is the report the 10 brought back. This was their report to Moses. We entered the land you sent us to explore, and it is indeed a bountiful country, a land flowing with milk and honey. Here is the kind of fruit it produces, but the people living there are powerful, and their towns are large and fortified. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. So after two of the spies try to convince you, most of you know their names, Joshua and Caleb, they come back and they say, uh, they're different from the other ten. 
Uh, they try to convince the people not to focus on the giants, but to focus on God's promises and to go and take the land. Uh, these, the ten spies then reply in verses 31 and 33, but the other men who had explored the land with him disagreed. We can't go up against them. They are stronger than we are. So they spread this bad report about the land among the Israelites. The land we traveled through and explored will devour anyone who goes to live there. All the people we saw were huge. Very interesting here. Ten of the spies, they can't get over the fact that there are giants in the land. There are these huge people. Notice what they say in verse 31 here at the end. It says, we can't go up against them. They are stronger than we are. Very interesting part to note here what they say. They see the size of the obstacle before them. And despite the promises of God, despite what God has told them, despite what they have just seen God do, they convince the Israelites to rebel. And they start planning to go back to being slaves. They legitimately think that's the better option. As they look at this land, as they look at the giants that are in the land, the obstacles before them, all the miracles they've seen, they say, you know what, let's just go back to Egypt. Let's go back to being slaves, to making bricks for the Egyptians and living in abject poverty and just being brutalized day after day after day. This is too much. We don't want to go into the land. They are viewing God and His promises through the filter of their inadequacies. Notice again what they said. They're bigger and stronger than we are. Their focus came off of God. They were no longer focused on how big God was, on how powerful God was, despite all that He was doing. I don't know if you've ever been in a circumstance in your life and you're like, well, God, if you would just do this, then I would know you are God. I would worship you. Everything would be good. And then we get mad when God doesn't do it. And yet, Many of us are like the Israelites. It doesn't matter how big God showed up. The next time something happened, oh my goodness, the world is caving in. There are giants in the land. They viewed God and His promises through the filter of their inadequacies, which is one way to view God and our circumstances. It's to view our circumstances, or to, to view God, sorry, through our circumstances. We see what's in front of us, and then we see God. And that's how we view Him. The second account I want to look at today is one that many of you are probably familiar with, and it's a totally different reaction to the giants in the land, David and Goliath. Now, many of you have probably heard the story of David and Goliath, but to give you a little background on this story, at this point in uh, this account, David is not the king. He's not this great, powerful person. He's just a little shepherd boy, and he is tending the flock, and his dad tells him, all right, um, your brothers that actually matter, now his dad probably didn't say that, but uh, uh, his brothers that were actually in the battle, they were at the, the, the battlefield. He says, take him some supplies, take him some stuff here. So he gives David some things and, to take to his brothers, some, some food and, and you know, little care packages for his brothers that are actually engaged in warfare. And he goes to the battleground and he finds, well, this is interesting. 
Uh, the Israelites and the Philistines have been lined up uh, for many days on end, and uh, the Philistines have basically been embarrassing the Israelites day after day after day, completely demoralizing them uh, when he shows up on the scene. What's interesting to note about David, which is why we're told, and when Samuel comes to anoint the new king, he goes through all of David's brothers who are generally what the impression we get. They're bigger than he is. They're better looking than he is. They're just better at everything than he is. And God doesn't choose any of them. And Samuel is, even Samuel is completely perplexed until God makes it very clear why David is his choice. And we see that repeated again in Acts chapter 13, verse 22. But God removed Saul and replaced him with David, a man about whom God said, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Wow. I don't know about you, but I would love for this sentence to be said about me by God. Whew, that would be a powerful thing. That's why David was chosen, because he was a man after God's own heart, a man who God himself said, he will do everything I want him to do. That's the David that we pull up into the scene here with. This is the David who, though he's just a young boy and uh, his major responsibility in life is taking care of a flock, of sheep, that's what he does. He's standing here amongst all of these warriors. And remember the account that we just talked about. The Israelites were scared of what? The giants in the land. Well, Goliath just so happens to be one of those giants. He's a descendant of those very same giants that the Israelites were fearful of beforehand. Here we see the Israelites again in fear of just one of the giants. As Goliath comes out day after day and taunts Israel and says, send a champion out and I'll fight him, I'll destroy him. And because he's bigger than everybody else, uh, they cower in the face of this which I also find interesting because one of the facts about Saul, who is the current king, um, what do you know about Saul and his stature? He's the tallest person in the nation of Israel. He's the biggest guy. And he doesn't go out to fight him. He should be the one to go out and fight him, but he doesn't. He cowers in fear as well. So we have the nation of Israel again in fear of the giants. When seeing the disrespectful way this Philistine giant acted toward God, instead of giving up because of the giant, David does something which I would argue is really rash and honestly pretty ridiculous. 1 Samuel 17, 32. Don't worry about this Philistine, David told Saul. I'll go fight him. I can just imagine being there and seeing this little kid say, I'll go fight him. Now, my son, maybe, he would probably feel that way. Um, now, David's not that young, but uh, I can imagine the attitude of some people as they hear David say this, as they look at him, as he says, I'll go fight this giant, and think like, oh, dumb kid. Oh, what a joke. But David is dead serious about this. This is legitimate, what you would maybe refer to as insanity. I mean, this guy's like nine foot tall, He's got a spear that is bigger than David, weighs more than David, and David's willing to go and fight this guy. With, I don't know if there's any fear. doesn't ever say there's no fear, but he's ready to go and fight this guy. 
Again, David was a man after God's own heart. David was far more concerned with God's kingdom than his own. David was ready to say, God, you know what? I'm going to put your kingdom before mine, and if this is where my kingdom ends, I'm okay with that. That's okay. At least I won't let your kingdom be disrespected, is David's thought. There's another story in the Bible, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I love that story. From a young kid, it was one of my favorite stories because I, I love what they say to the King Nebuchadnezzar. They tell him, listen, our God can save us from the fiery furnace, but I just want to make sure you know if he chooses not to save us, if this is where we die, you didn't win. Just want to make sure you know that, Nebuchadnezzar. I love that attitude. And they're saying, you know what? This, this is where our kingdom ends. So be it. I'm ready to let my kingdom end. If it means that I don't sit by and let your kingdom be disrespected and taken advantage of. Even when Goliath taunts David, David replies in 1 Samuel 17, 45, David replied to the Philistine, You come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This, this whole account, if you read it, David is coming in the name of the Lord. It's all about God for him in this. David doesn't seek any glory of his own, I think if you were able to pause this moment of history and ask David, like, you really think that you can beat this guy? David would probably reply, absolutely not. I don't know what God's going to do, but he's going to have to show up because I'm going to go out there, and I, I, there's no chance I can take on Goliath. So God's got to show up. I read a book once, and he's, the author of the book uh, talked about how rare it is for Christians to put ourselves in a place where if God didn't show up, we would look like fools. And his argument was, that's where God wants us to be. Very often, God will call us to those kind of things. And it's so rare that somebody would rise to that occasion, that they would be willing to step into a place where if God doesn't show up, man, we're sunk. And here's where we find David. Because let's be honest, if God didn't show up, David doesn't stand a chance. This guy, read the account, Goliath was trained for battle since he was a little kid. That is his sole purpose in life, is taking lives, is fighting and killing. That's what he was made for. David was meant to watch sheep. That was what he was made for. That's what he did. And yeah, he's fought some interesting beasts, and he's fought a bear, and he's fought all these different things, but... He's not fought a Goliath. He's not fought a well-armored, well-trained warrior. And so David steps out into the battle. This is a totally different reaction to the giants in the land that the, that the ten spies had. Though those ten spies were grown men, probably, what we can assume, they wouldn't have sent boys out to do that kind of work. They would have sent warriors, men who were skilled in infiltrating and getting out of a place. Men who had just seen God do incredible things, and yet their reaction to the giants was fear. See, David saw Goliath through the filter of God's promises and his holiness. And that's what made all the difference to David. He saw not a giant, he saw someone disrespecting his God. He saw someone coming against the God of the universe because that's the filter David viewed everything through. 
is through the filter of God. And then he saw his circumstances. The ten spies, they saw their circumstances, and then they saw God. They had their filters reversed. And that is a different way to view God and our circumstances. The third and final account I want to look at today is another one that you're probably all familiar with. The account of Jesus and Peter walking on water. And this is the one we'll really be diving into through this series, is this account. We pick this account up in Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. It says, immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake while he sent the people home. Okay, hold on a minute. I want to rewind here so that we know exactly what's going on, what this verse is saying when it says immediately after this. How many of you know what immediately after this is? Uh, what happened right before this? Yes, Jesus just fed over 5,000 people. And I, I, I don't say Jesus fed the 5,000 because it's an inaccurate view. See, Jesus fed more like 8,000 or 9,000. Not that it matters because, I mean, if you can feed... 10 people with the amount of food that Jesus had to begin with. It's still a miracle, but he fed over 5,000 uh, right, right before this. You see that. So this is what it's saying. Immediately after Jesus feeds over 5,000 people with barely enough food to feed one person, immediately after that, we continue to read on in verse 23. After sending them home, he went up to the hills by himself to pray. Night fell while he was there alone. Meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble far away from land, for a strong wind had risen, and they were fighting heavy waves. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them walking on the water. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified. In their fear, they cried out, It's a ghost! But Jesus spoke to them at once. Don't be afraid, he said. Take courage, I am here. Then Peter called to him, Lord, if it's really you... Tell me to come to you walking on the water. Yes, come, Jesus said. So Peter went over the side of the boat and walked on the water toward Jesus. But when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified and began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. You have so little faith, Jesus said. Why did you doubt me? When they climbed back into the boat, the wind stopped. Then the disciples worshipped him. You really are the Son of God, they exclaimed. So there is a lot going on in this passage, and we'll break some of this down over the next couple weeks. But what I want to focus on right now is Peter's interaction with Jesus throughout this whole thing. Peter has enough faith to get out of the boat in the first place, which I find to be an interesting circumstance, you know, the whole interaction, because if this wasn't Jesus, if it was like a demonic spirit, of course it would have told Peter to get out of the boat and die. So the fact that Peter steps out of the boat in the first place tells us he already knows this is Jesus. Uh, he says, well, if it's really you, tell me to come out of the boat. It doesn't really make any sense, but that's Peter. Peter acts and then he thinks uh, very often in his life. So Peter's faith was enough to get him out of the boat and onto the water, but not enough to get him to Jesus. And this is really interesting to note. His faith was enough to get him out of the boat and onto the water, but not enough to get him to Jesus. Peter initially sees Jesus through the filter of Jesus' miracles and Jesus' relationship with him. Peter has seen Jesus do enough 
that he is willing to say, man, if you tell me to, I will step out on this water. That's the level of faith Peter had. That's the filter Peter initially sees Jesus through. But then he steps out onto the water and quickly begins to see the waves through the filter of his own inadequacy. Peter flip-flops his filters there in that moment. When life really begins to press in on Peter, all of a sudden his filter changes and he begins to see it through his own inadequacy. And it's this account that the title of this series comes from, Sinking, because that's what begins to happen to Peter. You may relate more to the Israelites outside the promised land. As they look into the promised land, as they hear this report from the the ten spies. Maybe you relate to that. Maybe you freak out at the first sign of danger and you begin to question everything that God has ever done, everything He's ever said, and you're you're ready to go back. Maybe that's you. Maybe I hope that's not what you relate with, but maybe it is. If we're being honest, maybe that's you. I don't know if you've ever had that moment where you thought, this isn't worth it. I wish I could just go back and live my life the way I was living it before. You may relate more with David facing Goliath. You laugh in the face of danger, and you find yourself far more concerned with God's kingdom than even your own life. That'd be awesome if that's who you relate the most with. That's great. That's certainly a great thing to have. But more than likely, you will relate most with Peter. I know I certainly do. We've gotten out of the boat. We had enough faith to get out of the boat which I'm going to just use as an analogy of salvation. We got out of the boat with everybody else. The whole world was going one way, and we got out of the boat. We stepped onto the water. We had enough faith. And you know what? Maybe some of us, we even had enough faith to take a couple steps. We got a few steps away from the world. But man, those waves are big. Man, that wind is blowing, and the storm is crazy. And it is threatening to take us out. So here's what we're going to be talking about in this series. The waves, they're real. See, Peter, he was an experienced fisherman. He knew very well what it meant to be outside of a boat in the middle of a storm like that. He knew it was almost certain death to be outside of a boat in that kind of storm. What I think was interesting is I got to be blessed with going on a trip to Israel, and I was further blessed that we went out on the Sea of Galilee, actually on a boat. And then I was further blessed to see a storm roll in while we were out that was unexpected. And even in, I can't remember what year it was, I'm going to just guess, 2005. Even in that year, with a motorized boat and all of the equipment and instruments they had, The captain of the boat says, all right, enough, done, we're getting to shore right now. And he was legitimately afraid. And he said, we have to get to shore now because you do not want to be out here when a storm hits this sea. And sure enough, man, by the time we got to the side, it was rough, even booking it to where we needed to be. So I just thought, man, it was so cool that I got to see this happen in real life. The water was like totally flat. Storm came in and Peter, being on a much less advanced boat, having fished his whole life, knew what it meant to be out in that water. And so this is part of my frustration sometimes with uh, 
myself, pastors, uh, and the church is, it's very easy to downplay our circumstances. Very easy when someone says, the waves are big, to say, no, they're not. Those waves are nothing. They're not that big. Your waves might be pretty big. The stuff that's got you can be very real. And I would, what I don't want to do is preach a series that says, oh, your waves are nothing. Oh, the giants, they're not really big. And lie to you and say, your problems don't matter. Your problems do matter, and they're real. The stuff you're struggling with right now is probably very, very real. It certainly is real to you. Those waves were real to Peter. It doesn't benefit us to downplay the struggles that we have or to downplay the giants in the land. I hear it very, very often. People will just... Oh, it's not that big of a deal, you know, or we throw the, what I call the Jesus icing on the garbage cake, you know. I don't know if you've ever had like a really bad cake, like a vegetarian one or something. I don't know if those even exist, but that would be a very bad cake for me. Um, Just putting like a lot of good icing on it really doesn't do anything for you, all right? And sometimes people will try to throw the Jesus icing on the cake and say, despite all the stuff that's going on, they say, oh, but God is good. Is that true? Yes. Does it matter when the waves are crashing into you? Not so much. Throwing these nice little altruistic statements out just doesn't help. And follow with me on this, okay? I know some of you are like, yes, it does. Okay, just hold on a minute. Notice how Jesus responds to Peter's failure on the water. Jesus belittles Peter shames him for his lack of faith, misquotes a Bible verse to downplay the waves and lets Peter drown, right? Not so much. Peter's, or Jesus' response is, you know what, Peter? You got yourself into this mess, you can get yourself out. This is your, your fault. Not, also not what Jesus does. Matthew 14, 31, Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. You have so little faith, Jesus said. Why did you doubt me? Now, Just like I never text anything when I'm mad, it's so hard to read attitude or or tone when you read something that's just text. And so I think some of us might read this and we hear like a condescending voice, which we're not going to dive into this right now, but I'm going to argue that probably has a lot to do with your father issues more than uh, what is actually written on the page. See, when I read this, I look at this and I say, this is Jesus making a simple observation. You have so little faith. And then I see this as a, his question as many of the questions that I ask you during a sermon. It's meant to be a reflective question that you come back to later and think upon. He says, why did you doubt me? Now, if you don't think Peter came back to this question and played this question over in his mind throughout the rest of his life, I bet he did that with this just like he did when he denied Jesus later. He replayed that circumstance multiple times. Why did I doubt Jesus on that moment because as far as we know there's never another moment where Peter walks on the water he had one chance I don't know if you would ever if you've ever walked on water if you have you were the person in this circumstance you had one opportunity to do something that no other person all of humanity couldn't claim just you and you blew it if you're a guy You've replayed this in your mind a thousand times over. 
because you blew it. We don't like messing up, guys. We don't like failing. And so I imagine that Peter replays this question. Why did you doubt me? And Peter wonders, why did I? First off, why did I get out of the boat in the first place? Obviously, he knew he had faith. Jesus doesn't say, you don't have any faith. And Jesus, in another portion of Scripture, says what? Even if you have faith as small as a mustard seed. So Jesus isn't downplaying and belittling Peter here. He's making an observation. Your faith is small. Why did you doubt me? Because if we look at the rest of Peter's life here in the Scriptures, we see a a man who still messes up, later will deny Jesus, will deny even knowing Jesus, but then becomes one of the pillars of the early church and begins to lead a movement that changes the world. And my argument would be, if, you, if Peter, a few days before he walks to the cross and is, is martyred for his faith, if he got to redo this scene, if he got to redo this activity, I think he'd be doing cartwheels and maybe doing a moonwalk to Jesus. Because the waves wouldn't matter anymore. They wouldn't be less real. They wouldn't be smaller waves. And see, that's the difference in the way that we pray. I don't know how you pray when you're in a, in a circumstance. I don't know how you deal with the waves or the giants of your life. But as we read these accounts that we looked at today, reread them. Go home and reread them, and you'll notice something. God never made the giants smaller. God didn't make David bigger. Jesus didn't make the waves any smaller for Peter. That's not what we need. As you look at Peter's life from this moment on, God doesn't make Peter's life easier. As a matter of fact, Peter's life gets a whole lot more complicated after this day. Even after Jesus dies in shows that he is God by rising again. Peter's life still doesn't get any easier. I don't know. I know most of you probably haven't been pastors or you've never led a church. But just imagine for a moment leading the early church in a whole new thing. Nobody knows how to do it. At least, well, on the plus side, you never have to deal with saying, that's well, that's not how we did it back when Pastor so-and-so was here. Uh, but they have no idea what they're doing, and they have to now fight with Jews versus Gentiles, and they have all these debates and all of these people trying to creep in, all these false teachings happening. And let me tell you, Peter's life was extremely complicated after this. His problems don't get smaller. Peter doesn't become more powerful. I can almost guarantee you that till the end of Peter's life, when there was debate or when there was a problem or things were happening, somebody's in the corner thinking, man, Peter is out of control. This guy's temper. Whew. Because Peter was a hothead. He always acted, and then he thought. And Peter doesn't get better. He gets more desperately dependent on Jesus. That's the change in Peter's life. The Holy Spirit comes in, and it begins to enable him to do things he never could have done on his own. Just his shadow falling on somebody has power now, later in his life. Over the next couple weeks, I'm not going to try to make your life easier. I can't do that anyhow. I'm not going to try to make your problems seem any smaller. So what's interesting is God gave me this series and he gave me this material earlier in the week. 
And then all of a sudden stuff started happening. (laughs) See, you might be standing wherever you are, whether you're out on the water, a Christian or not, and what I don't want to say is, oh, the stuff that's going on in Afghanistan, that's nothing. Oh, Ida, oh, that was nothing too. That's just nothing. All the, if, if I'm being honest, the mask mandates and vaccine mandates and all these things, that they give me a little anxiety. This week I was wondering, is this new mask mandate, do I have to pull Killian out of pre-K or what are we going to do with him? Because uh, there's no way he's going to wear one. What do I have to do with this? Even this week, this stuff was looking to take me out and I was getting distracted. And if you're able to not be distracted in this culture, this life with current world circumstances, the things that are going on in our world, Man, teach me, please. Because that's what we're going to focus on in this series. It's not trying to convince you that life is easier, not trying to convince you that your problems don't matter, but trying to convince you that the real goal is to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. See, there was a time in my life, I had been, I, I, I might have shared this before, I had been to college for about three days, and I got a call that, my dad had tried to burn my family alive in our house, and he was going to jail for a very long time. And my whole life was imploding upon me. It was the most stressful time of my entire life. I thought I was a failure because I kind of considered it my job to protect my family. I thought everything was, everything was bad. And I can remember in that season, people would quote me Bible verses. Romans 8, 20, God works everything together for good. Explain to me how this is going to work out for good is my thought. As the waves were huge, I was sinking, and people were throwing these like nice little platitudes. Now I get it. They're just college kids. They didn't know any better. I understand that. But it was in that moment I realized, man, it doesn't help to do those kind of things. I felt like a failure as a person. I was ready to quit college. I was done with Bible college. I was going to go home, and I was just going to get a local job, and I was going to protect my family and take care of them. And God showed up in a way that changed my life, despite the waves, despite people's response to the waves. And so through this series, I'm really just going to encourage us to learn not to just throw fancy verses at people, to not just, you know, quote things that we've heard in the past, like God is good and God works everything together for good. Man, if you're, if you're one of the families of, of the soldiers from Afghanistan, you don't want to hear that kind of stuff. That doesn't help. If you're Job in the Old Testament, what do his friends do that first week? They just sit there. They're overwhelmed with how bad Job's life is. And they just sit with him. And I would argue that's the best week of their friendship of their life. And then they ruin it because they open their mouth. And sometimes, just imagine. Now, I'm an imagination person. Just imagine if somebody else was there with Peter. And they just walked with him. Maybe that would have given him some boldness. Maybe that would have given him the courage he needed. But maybe that's what God's calling you to now. Maybe somebody is in your life sinking. Maybe you are sinking. And you think you can go it alone, or you think, well, because I have this title in the church that I have to be something, or I have to act like my holiness is better than somebody else's, or I can't admit that I'm, I'm in the midst of crippling depression, or I can't admit these things that are going on in my life, or that I'm ready to just give it all up, or I wonder why I became a Christian in the first place. Whatever your sinking looks like, Maybe we just need to be honest about it. 
If I'm honest, this week, man, I was fired up over stuff that was going on. I was so excited for Killian to go to pre-K, and I thought, is it going to ruin it? And I was, I was taken out for a, at least a day or two. I was, I was really frustrated. The waves got big. I was like, man, Lord, this is going to be a good sermon series. You're giving me illustrations already. Right after you gave the material. What we're going to talk about in this series is how we can acknowledge that the giants and the waves exist. We can acknowledge their size and the danger they represent, but keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We're going to have to wrestle with how we view God in our circumstances. Where's our filter? Is it God, then our circumstances, or circumstances, then God? How are we viewing our life currently? And when we begin to sink, do we have, like that kid I tried to save, do we have that selfish tunnel vision that says, the only thing that matters right now is me and my problems? And, oh, why doesn't, the, why doesn't so-and-so call me more often? Or why does, you know, I was, I was depressed on, somebody and no, on Sunday and nobody said hi to me or I was really struggling and nobody did this and that or the other and we, we focus on ourselves. Or do we have what I'm going to call holy tunnel vision? And all we see, despite the waves, despite the giants in the land, despite all of that stuff, is all we see is Jesus. See, because there's a reason God doesn't make the waves smaller or the giants smaller or us bigger. is because when he wins, the glory is his. Like when we read David and Goliath's story, if God would have made David nine foot and just as strong as Goliath, man, the story wouldn't really have the impact it does. But David, a puny little kid, takes out Goliath with a rock from the river? That's a big deal. Maybe God's looking to get some glory in your life, and all we have to do is focus our eyes on him. That's what's so important. And so often we can either shame each other or just throw platitudes around, and maybe what someone needs is for us to sit beside him and go, man, your life stinks. Let's pray. Let me tell you about Jesus. That's what maybe we need. It's for someone to do that to us, to just sit with us, pray with us, point our eyes back to Jesus. I don't know about you, but I've needed that in my life. There are times where my eyes get off of Jesus. And Bible verses, you know, the, the easy stuff doesn't work. It takes somebody sitting down and saying, man, this is rough. This is real. I feel your heart on this. Let's seek Jesus together. And if we're sinking, if we ourselves find ourselves in a place where we're sinking, we're going under the water, we're beginning to panic, maybe we need to have the humility to either reach out to others and admit it or just reach our hand to Jesus and say, like Peter said, save me, Lord, I'm sinking. To be honest with those around us and say, I'm sinking right now. I know I'm an elder, I know I'm a deaconess, I know I'm, I've been a Christian for 50 years, but... Man, I'm sinking. The waves are too big. Can you help me? That's what family's about. We just did communion today. We're a family. And our vision, again, to remind you, is to be a family where everyone can know and experience and be empowered to ignite the love of Christ. That experience part, that's part of what might need to happen in your life right now if you find yourself sinking. As you begin to experience the love of Christ in a way that doesn't, make all the waves go away, doesn't make the giant smaller, but zeroes your eyes in on him. 
And that's what will change everything, is a touch from him, just a, a moment in his presence. And when Peter really begins to understand who Jesus is, then those waves don't matter anymore. He's ready and willing to go to the cross and give his life up. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you have shown yourself to be real in my life. I thank you, God, for the times that I have been sinking. You have never left me. You were always there with your hand already stretched out. All I needed to do was grab a hold. And God, I thank you for the people in my life that have helped remind me to lift my eyes from my problems and look to you, to see your outstretched hand, to be reminded that my God is good. I thank you for the people who didn't try to downplay my circumstances, didn't try to convince me that though my life was imploding, it wasn't that big of a deal. Lord, I pray over us as a family that we would be authentic with one another, that we could be real with each other with where we're at. Whether we're skipping on the waves or up to our necks sinking and ready to go under, Lord, I pray we could be honest with each other. Would you give us a spirit of authenticity with each other? And that we could love each other in a way that points each other's eyes back to you. Because if that's all Peter focused on, he never would have sunk in the first place. And though you didn't seek to shame him in that, you just lifted him up. Lord, I pray this week, despite all the things that might occur, and who knows what this week holds. We don't, but you do. Lord, I pray when the trouble hits, when the bad news hits, when the stress and anxiety hit, we would focus our eyes on you. We would see you for who you are because it changes everything. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a good week, church.